What does it mean to be whole? Does it mean that we are able to win the battle against our inner demons? Or does it mean finding a way to be at peace with the conflict? Do we feel whole with that one person who seems to fill all of our missing pieces? What happens if we lose them? The Twins Tannis crept closer, his heart pounding in his throat. One swift movement and the frail mage would crumble. Then, Tannis found himself caught and held by Raceland's voice, compelled to stop for a moment and listen, almost as if Raceland was weaving a spell around him. The last test in the Tower of High Sorcery was against myself, and I failed. I killed him, Tannis. I killed my brother. Raceland's voice was calm. Or at least, I thought it was Caramon. The maid shrugged. As it turned out, it was an illusion created to teach me the depths of my hatred and jealousy. Thus, they thought to purge my soul of darkness. What I truly learned was that I lacked self-control. Still, since it was not part of the true test, my failure did not count against me. Except with one person. I watched him kill me, Caramon cried wretchedly. They made me watch so that I would understand him. The big man's head dropped into his hands, his body convulsed with a shudder. I do understand, he sobbed. I understood then. I'm sorry, just don't go without me, Raced. You're so weak, you need me. No longer, Caramon, Raceland whispered with a soft sigh. I need you no longer. Tannis stared at them both, sick with horror. He couldn't believe this, not even of Raceland. Caramon, go ahead, he commanded hoarsely. Don't make him come near me, Tannis, Raceland said, his voice gentle, as if he read the half-elf's thoughts. I assure you, I am capable of this. What I have sought all my life is within my grasp. I will let nothing stop me. Look at Caramon's face, Tannis. He knows. I killed him once. I can do it again. Hello, and welcome to episode three of the D&D Book Club. My name is Megan, and today we'll be reading the final novel of the Dragonlance Chronicles trilogy, Dragons of Spring Dawning, by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman, published in 1985 by TSR Incorporated. If you haven't already listened to my Dragons of Autumn Twilight and Dragons of Winter Night episodes, you may want to go back and listen to those episodes first. As usual, I want to warn you that this episode will contain spoilers. So if you haven't yet read the novel and would like to do so before listening, proceed no further. In our next episode, we'll be reading Time of the Twins by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman. So grab a copy if you're reading along with the podcast. We are going to start this episode with a dive into the mythology of the world of Dragonlance. In our previous episode, we talked about how the elves, ogres, and humans were created. Now I want to focus on the mightiest of the races of Kryn, the dragons. The history of the dragons is a bit murky, as there's some disagreement between the novels and the game supplements as to their true origins. In one version, we'll save the second version for a later episode, the dragons are created by the supreme god of good, Paladine. 
The first race of dragons are the chromatic dragons, the fire-breathing reds, the lightning-breathing blues, the poison-breathing greens, the acid-breathing blacks, and the ice-breathing whites. They are meant to be the supreme race on Kryn, endowed with very long lifespans, keen intellect, and powerful magic. However, these first dragons are corrupted by the Queen of Darkness, Tachesis, and turn to evil. Morning, Paladine asks the blacksmith of the gods, Reorks, to build monuments to his fallen children from gold, silver, bronze, brass, and copper. Paladine breathes life into these statues and they become the first of the good dragons. For what it's worth, my favorite dragons are the blues. There are three great wars involving the dragons before the War of the Lance, which is what the war detailed in the Chronicles trilogy will come to be called. The most important of these wars for our purposes is known as the Third Dragon War. The wizards in the Towers of High Sorcery attempt to create portals which will allow travel to other planes of existence. They are successful, but perhaps a little too successful. One of their portals opens into the Abyss, the plane where Tachesis, the Queen of Darkness, reigns supreme. Tachesis leads a full-on assault to gain mastery of Kryn. The good races, led by the Knights of Salamnia and aided by the Gods of Good, resist her and her dragons. All races, all nations, and all the gods are eventually drawn into the conflict. Ultimately, the forces resisting Tachesis are able to achieve victory with the help of two powerful weapons. The Dragon Orbs, five magical glass spheres with the power to control dragons, and the Dragon Lances, holy weapons which can pierce the nearly impenetrable skin of the evil dragons. In the final confrontation, the knight Huma rides into battle on a silver dragon, the older sister of Silvara, in fact, armed with a dragon lance. He defeats Queen Tachesis in her five-headed dragon form, driving her back into the abyss. The dragons of evil are forced to leave the land, but in order to maintain the balance, the dragons of good withdraw as well. By the time of the companions, dragons are thought to be extinct or simply legendary. Huma is aided by his two closest companions, the Minotaur Kaz and the wizard Magius. Magius wields a powerful magic staff that will be passed down through the generations of wizards until it is given to Raceland Magir after his test in the Tower of High Sorcery. So now you know all about the dragons. Before we meet a few more in Dragons of Spring Dawning, let's do a quick recap of the previous episode. The Companions have gone in search of a permanent home for the refugees freed from the fortress of Pax Tharkis. They are separated during the destruction of the city of Tarsus, but not before learning of the existence of the dragon orbs. The groups each managed to obtain one of the three remaining orbs on Kryn, one from Sylvanesti and one from Icewall. Tannis Half-Elfin and his group travel to the port city of Flotsam, where Tannis is mistaken for a dragon army officer and has no choice but to play along. Lorana, Sturm Brightblade, and their companions end up in the High Clarist's Tower, stronghold of the Knights of Salamnia, which is besieged by the dragon armies under Dragon Highlord Kidiara Uthmatar. The defenders are victorious, but most of the knights are killed, including Sturm. There is hope at last for the forces of good, but the Queen of Darkness is not defeated yet. The all-important Green Gemstone Man is within her reach, and her most horrifying weapon is about to make his presence known. As the novel begins, we find ourselves back in the port city of Flotsam on the shore of the Blood Sea of Istar. Here, the dragon high lord Kidiara has made her headquarters and Tannis Half-Elven, leader of the Companions, has become her prisoner and or lover. 
At the end of the last novel, Tannis was rescued by the High Lord of the Blue Dragon Army, only to realize to his surprise that the High Lord was none other than his former lover, Kidiara. Mistakenly thinking Tannis has become an officer in her army, Kidiara invites him back to her quarters for a thorough debriefing. Tannis spends several days with Kidiara, not able to leave without arousing suspicion, but aroused enough himself that he doesn't really want to. Kidiara reveals to him that she is searching for the mysterious Green Gemstone Man. His capture, it is believed, will mean victory for the armies of the Dark Queen. Tannis, it so happens, knows the Green Gemstone Man is in this very city, calling himself Barum, and working as the helmsman on the ship called the Parishon. Tannis is able to stall Kidiara, convincing her it can wait until after the attack on the High Clarice's Tower. Meanwhile, Goldmoon, Riverwind, Tika Whalen, and Raislin and Karaman Majir are in hiding within the city. They don't know what's happened to Tannis. He could have been captured or killed. Should they wait for him, try to rescue him, or should they escape the city on board the Parishon as they had originally planned? At last, Tannis ghosts Kidiara by sneaking away while she's off fighting. He finds his friends and tells them that he was a prisoner of the Dragon Highlord, but spares them the intimate details. Only Raceland questions his story. The original plan remains in place, but escape is even more urgent now. Not only do Tannis and the companions need to escape Flotsam, they need to keep Barum as far away from Kidiara as possible. Meanwhile, on the far side of the sea, the Knights of Salamia at last enter the city of Planthus. Their victory has been hard won. Most of the knights have been killed, including nearly all of the veterans, and Sturm Brightblade himself. The elven princess Serana travels to Palanthus with the knights, accompanied by the kender, Tasselhoff Burfoot, and the dwarf, Flint Fireforge. Because of the heroic sacrifice of Sturm Brightblade, the knights are welcomed into the city as saviors. But the situation remains dire. The dragon armies have been repelled, but not defeated. The knights have the dragon lance, but not nearly enough men to wield them. Besides, without a dragon orb to lure the evil dragons, the lances are barely any help at all. Lances, as you might know from watching A Knight's Tale, are intended to be used by warriors on horseback, or in the case of this novel, dragonback. Without good dragons to ride against the evil dragons, there isn't much hope for ultimate victory. Lorana is soon stunned to learn that she has been made leader of the Knights of Salamnia and Palanthus by Grandmaster Gunthar Uthwistan. Despite not being a knight herself, Lorana is the most experienced warrior and commander currently in the field. That's not saying a lot, however. Lorana knows she isn't qualified, but she has no choice but to accept. Her timing is excellent. Her brother Gilthanus arrives in the city riding the silver dragon Silvara, bringing with him an entire armada of metallic dragons. The knights have their leader, they have their dragons, and they have their lances. All they need is more men. Fortunately, the young men of Palanthus, inspired by the bravery of Sturm Brightblade, are eager to enlist. Soon, the forces of good have an army capable of going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the forces of evil. While exploring the city of Palanthus, Tasselhoff and Flint become lost in a deserted part of town. The ever-curious Tasselhoff can't help but want to explore. Yet, as they do, a sense of dread begins to grow within them. They explore deeper into the empty neighborhoods, and the dread becomes terror. At last, they find a grove of ancient oak trees which radiate a magical fear spell so powerful that even the fear-immune task can't withstand it. The oak trees surround the cursed and haunted Tower of High Sorcery in Palanthus. 
Once one of the great strongholds of magic on Kryn, the tower was abandoned, its secrets protected by the fear spell. It has remained empty ever since the days before the cataclysm, waiting for a mysterious figure called the Master of Past and Present to return with power. Over in Flotsam, the companions set sail on the Parishon, wanting to put as much distance between themselves and Kidiara as possible, but they weren't fast enough. One of Kidiara's spies learns of Tanis's escape. Enraged, Kidiara mounts her blue dragon sky and takes off in pursuit. Barum, fearing capture by the Dark Queen more than dying, steers the Parishon directly into a great storm. The dragon cannot follow and turns back, but the companions have not escaped. Barum has unknowingly sailed them into a great maelstrom in the center of the Blood Sea. On board, the companions know death is imminent. Raceland declares that the magic of the dragon orb he obtained from Sylvanesti can be used to escape the sinking ship, but there's a catch. Raceland doesn't know how many others he can take with him. He knows he can save himself. Any more, and the spell may fail. When asked how he could be so heartless as to leave his twin brother behind to die, Raceland replies with the ominous words, I killed him once, I can do it again, and vanishes. Moments later, the Parishon is dragged to the bottom of the sea. The end. No, just kidding. The companions miraculously survive the sinking and awaken in a strange ruined city. Tanis accuses Barum of deliberately leading them into this trap, but realizes Barum has no idea where they are either. Barum finally tells Tanis his story, or at least part of it. The green gemstone in Barum's chest resurrects him every time he dies. Barum has been wandering Anslan for hundreds of years, never growing older, dying but not staying dead. All this time, he's been hunted by the Queen of Darkness, although he doesn't quite understand why. At least, he claims he doesn't understand why. Upon exploration, the companions discover that they are in the ruins of the city of Istar on the bottom of the Blood Sea. The city was drowned during the Cataclysm, but apparently this portion managed to retain some air, somehow. The companions meet a red robe wizard named Zebula, who is married to a sea elf named Apoletta. The sea elves, or Darganesti, brought the survivors of the wreck of the Parishon to the city. Zebula believes the sea elves will be safe deep in the sea, but Tanis manages to convince Apoletta that there is no safe place to hide from the Queen of Darkness. The sea elves must do their part by returning the companions to the surface so they can discover the secret of Barum's importance to the Queen. Apoletta at last agrees and returns the companions and Barum to the surface. We also learn more of what happened to Raceland during his test in the Tower of High Sorcery, as seen through Caramon's eyes. Caramon remembers watching Raceland during his test and feeling powerless to save Raceland as he is weakened to the point of death. Then a strange thing happens. Caramon himself appears within the magical fabrication of the test. Not the real Caramon, but an illusion created by the wizards. Caramon watches himself rescue Raceland by casting a powerful spell of his own. Raceland has no way of knowing that this isn't the real Caramon, of course. Enraged and jealous and resentful, Raceland kills the illusion Caramon. The real Caramon is unharmed, but he must now live with the knowledge that his own twin brother is capable of murdering him. This is what Raceland meant when he said, I killed him once. But what of Raceland himself? After escaping the doomed Parishon, Raceland arrived near death on the steps of the Great Library in Palanthus. The Great Library is no ordinary library stocking Gillian Flynn and Michael Connolly novels. 
It's a collection of the Chronicles of Astinus, a complete history of Kryn up until the present. Astinus himself is master of the library. According to legend, he was the first living being to set foot upon Kryn and has recorded its history ever since. He can see the present, but not the future. He is neutral in all things, recording history, but not shaping it. Raceland doesn't have long to live, but he asks Astinus to let him peruse the great library. Astinus agrees. There's an unspoken tension here because Astinus senses someone else present when he looks at Raceland, but refuses to tell Raceland whom. Raceland searches through the spellbooks belonging to Fistandantilus and discovers references to a key which is necessary to unlock their power. Unfortunately for Raceland, this key has been lost to time. Astinus, supposedly neutral even in matters of life and death, accidentally gives Raceland the clue he needs. Raceland must beseech the Queen of Darkness herself to assist him. Elsewhere in Palanthus, things are going great for Lorana and Pals. The knights are at last allied with the good dragons and armed with the dragon lances. Lorana launches a successful campaign against the dragon armies and earns the nickname the Golden General. Her fame and reputation spread. She becomes a hero to the people. During a successful attempt to liberate the strategic city of Calaman, Tasselhoff and Flint ride a bronze dragon named Fireflash into aerial combat. They manage to capture a dragon army officer named Bakaris, one of Kidiara's favorites. Days later, a draconian spy sneaks into the city to deliver a message to Tasselhoff during the annual spring dawning festival. It's a message for Lorana from Kidiara herself. Kidiara claims that Tanis has been wounded and is near death. Kidiara offers to trade the dying Tanis for Lorana's prisoner, Bakaris. Tasselhoff and Flint warn Lorana that this is an obvious trap, but Lorana is heedless of their warnings. She is so lovesick that she will risk her own life and the lives of those under her command for a chance to say goodbye to the man who dumped her. We soon learn that this was actually a pretty desperate gamble on the part of Kidiara. Her military career is in jeopardy. She is holed up in the ruined fortress called Dargard Keep when she receives an unwelcome visit from Dragon Highlord Ariakas, the supreme commander of all the dragon armies on Ancelon. Ariakas has come to personally execute Kidiara for failing to capture the High Clarice's Tower at the end of the last novel. But just as Ariakas is about to slay Kidiara, she is rescued by an armor-clad specter with flames for eyes. This is Lord Soth, the Death Knight. Lord Soth was once a knight of Salamnia and the lord of Dargard Keep, but centuries ago he was cursed to exist forever as a death knight. He is nearly unstoppable in battle and wields powerful magic. He is, simply put, one of the deadliest beings on Kryn. He has stayed out of the ward thus far, but now has made an alliance with Kidiara. She explains to Ariakas that she has laid a trap for the Golden General and will offer her to the Queen of Darkness. Ariakas has no choice but to spare her life for now. Even he is no match for Lord Saw. Kidiara's obvious trap turns out to be a trap, and Lorana is captured by Lord Soth. Tass and Flint manage to escape and return to Calaman with the bad news. The people are devastated at the loss of their leader and symbol of hope. Right on cue, Tanis and the rest of the companions arrive in Calaman with no memory of their time in Istar. They reunite with Tasselhoff and Flint, but there's no time for celebration. The companions decide to set off toward Naraka, the city of the Queen of Darkness, to rescue Lorana. Gilthana stays behind to lead the armies of good in his sister's stead. 
Goldmoon and Riverwind stay behind as well. Goldmoon is pregnant, and they will not risk the life of her child in a possible suicide mission. Tannis, Tasselhoff, Flint, Karaman, Tika, and Barum begin their journey on Dragonback. Along the way, the companions are pursued by a befuddled old wizard riding a befuddled gold dragon and forced to land in enemy territory. The wizard is none other than our old friend Fizban, to whom the brass dragons show a strange deference. He instructs his gold dragon to shrink down to pocket size for convenience and joins the companions on their journey. The group is pursued by draconians and only escape when Fizban creates a magical golden bridge across a deep gorge. It's a close call, however. Fizban leads the group to a mysterious ruin called God's Home, where the ancient gods supposedly once dwelt on Kryn. Barum vanishes. The companions search for him, eventually discovering his trail. Flint takes the lead, pushing himself to the last limits of his endurance. Flint pursues Barum into God's Home itself, but the tight confines of the passage slow down the larger adventurers. When Tannis finally manages to catch up to them in the strange ruins, Flint is dead at Barum's feet. In a rage, Tannis draws his sword and plunges it through Barum. Barum falls down dead. As Flint dies, he says that it wasn't Barum that killed Flint, but Flint's failing heart. Barum tried to save Flint when he collapsed, but there was nothing Barum could do. One by one, the companions say goodbye to the dying Flint. Turning to a suddenly lucid Fizban, Flint claims he recognizes him. He asks Fizban to accompany him on his journey, and Fizban agrees. Fizban lifts up Flint's body and carries him into a black mirror, laying on the ground in a circle of stones. The black mirror seems to reflect the night sky. Fizban steps into the center of the mirror. He and Flint vanish. Looking into the night sky within the mirror, Tana sees the constellation called the Valiant Warrior, first noticed missing way back in Dragons of Autumn Twilight, has returned, but only in the reflection. In the true sky above, the constellation is still missing. The power of the green gemstone brings Barum back to life. Overcome with physical, spiritual, and emotional exhaustion, Barum at last tells the truth of how he came to be cursed by the green gemstone. In the years immediately following the cataclysm, Barum and his younger sister lived alone. While out hunting one day, the pair found the ruins of a great temple decorated with priceless gemstones. Barum's sister, Jasla, sensed that stealing from this temple would be sacrilege. Barum ignored her, trying to pry loose a green gemstone. Jasla tried to stop him, and, in the ensuing struggle, Jasla was accidentally killed. Here things get a little murky. I've tried to make sense of this story many times, but I just can't make the pieces fit. So I'll just say this. When Barum's sister's blood spilled on the column, it triggered a reaction. The ruins began to grow into an evil temple, and the Dark Queen herself appeared, claiming he has opened the door to let her back into the world. As a cruel reward, she places the green gemstone he coveted into his flesh. She was about to kill Barum, but he was protected by the spirit of his sister. He ran and has been running from the Dark Queen for centuries. Tanis, Karaman, Tika, Tass, and Barum continue on to Naraka. To their surprise, they find the small, unholy city overrun with dragon army soldiers as well as dragons themselves. The Dark Queen has called a meeting of her High Lords to discuss their strategy for conquering Kryn, and each High Lord has taken their own personal army along for the trip, including Ariakas and Kitiara. 
Tannis and Caramon still have the Dragon Army officer armor they stole in Flotsam, and they attempt a ruse to infiltrate the temple complex. The ruse immediately fails, as the captain of the guard suspects them of being deserters. Tannis manages to break away and get Kidiara's attention. The others are taken to the dungeons. One of Kidiara's draconian henchmen suspects there is something unusual about these prisoners and goes to investigate. Realizing Barum's true identity, the Draconian intends to bring him to Kidiara, but the prisoners escape. Tika and Tass lead the guards away while Karaman escorts Barum. Barum, now half-mad, hears the spirit of his sister calling to him. His goal is to reach her. Karaman is badly wounded as he attempts to protect Barum. Meanwhile, Tass and Tika come upon a locked door. Tasselhop attempts to pick the lock, but it's been booby-trapped. He's pricked by a poison needle, which begins to spread through his body. Up above, all the dragons have gathered with the shadowy presence of the Dark Queen watching. Kitiara plans to present the Golden General, Larana, as a gift to the Dark Queen. Tannis makes a bargain with Kitiara. He will enter her service, become her vassal for life, if she will spare Larana's life. Kitiara agrees. However, this conflicts with another promise she made to Lord Soth. She promised Soth that she would give Lorana to him to turn into his undead bride. As part of the ritual of joining the dragon armies, Tannis must lay his sword at the feet of the highest of the High Lords, Ariacus. Tannis pretends to do so, planning to kill Ariacus instead. His plan falls apart when he realizes that Ariacus is a magic user and protected by a powerful spell. Suddenly, Tannis hears a voice whispering in his head, coming from a black-robed figure standing beside the Dark Queen. It's our old pal Raislin. Speaking into Tannis' mind, he urges him to strike. Tannis strikes as Raislin uses his magic to counter Ariacus's magic. Tannis kills the High Lord and takes the crown of power from his head. Soth attempts to kill Tannis and seize the crown, but Kitiara calls him off. Tannis joins Lorana on the platform before the Dark Queen. Knowing Kitiara is obsessed with obtaining the crown for herself, he threatens to throw it into the middle of the armies unless Kitiara escorts him and Lorana to safety. But Lorana has no intention of being a damsel in distress. Plus, she's pretty fed up with Tannis at this point. Lorana shoves him off the platform. He falls and drops the crown. Chaos ensues as every dragon high lord orders his or her troops to bring them the crown. The dragon armies turn on one another. Below the temple, near the point of death, Karaman is rescued by his brother. Raceland has been given the key he needs by the Queen of Darkness. He has taken the black robes and been transformed and is now the most powerful magic user in the world. He explains to Karaman that reuniting Barum with the spirit of his sister will force the Dark Queen back into the abyss. Of course, Raceland is technically supposed to be loyal to Tachesis, but Raceland knows that with Ariakas dead and Tachesis banished, he will be the most powerful force on Kryn and can do as he pleases. Raceland protects Barum and allows Barum to kill himself upon the same column where he first found the green gemstone. Barum and Jadza are reunited in death. As the Dark Queen is forced back into the abyss, the temple begins to crumble. Karaman and Raceland find Tika and Tasselhoff. Raceland saves them both, and the four escape the temple. Meanwhile, Lorana and Tannis are escaping too, until they're stopped by Lord Soth. Ultimately, Kidiara allows them to escape. She wants them to spend the rest of their lives knowing they owe their lives to her. 
Lord Soth loses his chance to get with Lorana, but he doesn't mind. He's found a new object for his fixation, Kittyara herself. After escaping the city, the companions reunite. Raceland says his final goodbye to his brother. Caramon offers to follow Raceland into darkness, even risking his own life, but Raceland refuses. He uses his magic to summon the green dragon, Cyan Bloodbane, and flies away. The remaining companions are met by Fizban, although now the jig is up. The companions have realized that Fizban is no mere mortal. He is, in fact, the god Paladine in disguise. That's why the two constellations were missing in the first novel. The Queen of Darkness had come to Kryn to wage her war, and Paladine had come to Kryn to stop her. He has been secretly guiding the companions all this time. He explains that the war has been won, but the conflict between good and evil will continue as it always has. The evil dragons will not be banished, but the good dragons will remain as well. The queen is back in the abyss, but still has influence on the world. The dragon armies have been defeated, but Kidiara remains to consolidate the remnants into a new army. But at least the people of Kryn have hope once again, in the form of the ancient gods and their new faith. Saying goodbye to the companions, Fizban, aka Paladine, mounts his gold dragon and flies away. The companions are safe for now. Tanis and Lorana have come to truly love one another. Now they must return to Calaman to tell the news of the queen's defeat to Gilthanis and the Knights of Salamia. Tika and Karaman will return to rebuild Salas. Tasselhoff will go wherever he pleases, excited for his next adventure. That same night, far away in Palanthus, Raceland has come to the Tower of High Sorcery. He approaches the haunted grove, immune to its fear. He walks through unharmed. Reaching the tower, he declares himself to be the master of past and present. The gates open and Raceland enters his new home. And so ends the first trilogy of the Dragonlance series. As I wrote this, I was reminded of the first time I finished reading the trilogy as a kid. I cried when I finished Spring Dawning. I think the only time I ever did something similar was when I cried after watching the extended cut of The Return of the King. I was crying because something I loved had come to its end, as all good things must. But that was little kid me. Grown-up me has a few more ideas in her head, so let's talk about what works in this novel and what doesn't. What I like best about Spring Dawning are the character arcs that have been developing since book one, paying off to our satisfaction. First, we have Lorana's arc. She starts as a spoiled little princess, but grief and responsibility force her to grow strong and resourceful. By the end, Lorana doesn't see Tanis as this heartthrob to chase after, nor does she see him as her rescuer. She sees him as her equal. She has become strong in all the ways she once thought Tanis was strong, maybe even stronger. Tannis's arc is resolved fairly nicely as well. In the first novel, Tannis is still dreaming of Kidiara while rejecting Lorana. By the end of the third novel, Tannis comes to realize that his love for these women mirrors the conflict of his heritage. He is half human and half elf. He loves a human and he loves an elf. Tannis eventually realizes that the Kidiara he loved was a figment of his imagination. Lorana, on the other hand, is the answer to his inner conflict. He loves her as a human, and he loves her as an elf. He is no longer divided. We even get a little character arc for Tasselhoff. He started out as carefree and fearless. 
After suffering through the war and losing both Sturm and Flint and Fizban in a way, Tasselhoff has learned to care about others in a way Kender rarely do. His sadness at the death of Flint is touching in a way few novels achieve. We feel his pain, but also his love and his hope for a reunion in the next life. Of course, the best arc resolved in the novel is that of Caramon and Raislin. The twins have long shared this codependent relationship that was healthy for neither of them. Raislin got Caramon's physical protection, but he also got Caramon's pity. Caramon's role as his brother's keeper gave him an identity he lacked on his own, but he also had to withstand Raislin's constant abuse. Raislin resents Caramon for treating him like he's helpless, and Caramon resents Raislin for keeping him apart from Tika. Since Raislin's test in the Tower of High Sorcery and Weyrath, their relationship has become downright toxic. By the end of the novel, however, Caramon has a much stronger sense of his own worth. He isn't just an appendage of Raislin, but his own man. Freed from the shackles of obligation he felt for his brother, Caramon is free to start his new life with Tika. It's a disaster, but we'll save that for the next episode. Another aspect of this novel I like is how the companions are able to defeat the Queen of Darkness. Naturally, there isn't much a small group of adventurers can do against a goddess with a platoon of dragons and armies at her command. In fact, that isn't even the plan. The plan is simply to rescue Lorana. What Tannis is able to do, with the help of Raislin, is turn the dragon army against itself. Obviously, he can't defeat an entire army alone, but he doesn't need to. Evil turns in upon itself. That's one of the lessons from the discs of Mishakal the companions retrieve from the ruins of Zaxaroth. It's one of the main themes of the entire series. Evil is ultimately self-defeating. Good people just need to keep fighting and keep going, and eventually the greed, selfishness, and arrogance of the forces of evil will cause them to collapse. That's exactly how the companions are able to win against impossible odds. Of course, the companions do have help from a certain god. When I was young, I was blown away by the revelation that Fizban is really Paladine. It's a bit easier to see the foreshadowing now, with the benefit of age, wisdom, and hindsight. Still, as a dreamy-eyed child, the idea that this goofy character we've been palling around with for three novels is actually a divine being in disguise is quite a trip. Dragons of Spring Dawning also benefits from the introduction of new villains and the greater depth of insight we gain into Kitiara's character. We see Kitiara as a clever and resourceful woman who is able to turn her defeat at the High Clarice Tower into a position of strength. She is able to win the loyalty, respect, and admiration of a Death Knight, not an easy feat. When the chaos of the downfall of Naraka is over and the queen is gone, it is Kitiara who remains unchallenged. We also meet Lord Ariakas, a man so intimidating that you can imagine even fierce characters like Kitiara and Verminard being afraid of him. And then there's Lord Soth. We'll get to him in a few minutes. So what don't I like about Dragons of Spring Dawning? In a word, Barum. Whether you call him Barum or the Everman or the Green Gemstone Man, he's a disappointment. He seems to me like an idea which is better on paper, no pun intended, than in actual practice. He spends most of his time in the first two novels pretending to be mute, and most of his time in the third novel either terrified or insane. He really doesn't have much personality. The only time it shines through is after Flint's death, but that doesn't last. The entire concept of the Queen needing to capture Barum in order to win the war is very muddled and confusing. It leaves us with more questions and answers. What would she do with him if she captured him? 
Raisa makes it clear that Takesis can destroy him. That would stop him from joining Jasla in the jeweled column and sending Takesis back into the abyss. But how would it guarantee her victory? Perhaps if the Dark Queen got Barum, she could fully enter the world in all her might and majesty, but that's never explicitly stated. You just have to take it for granted that the Dark Queen capturing Barum is bad. I also have to say I don't like how Lorana is captured. Kittyara sets an obvious trap and Lorana just strolls right into it. I can suppose Lorana might be willing to sacrifice her life to save Tannis's life, but Kittyara tells Lorana that Tannis is dying and just wants to say goodbye. Lorana is willing to risk the entire war effort just to say goodbye to her ex-boyfriend. It's very out of character for someone who has been so responsible and clear-headed until now. I think the authors just needed a reason to send the companions to Naraka and use Lorana as a plot device. For the next segment, I want to talk about some of the characters in the novel. Unlike the previous two episodes, I'm actually going to do character studies on two villains, Kidiara and Lord Soth. Kidiara Uthmitar was born to a Salamnic knight named Gregor and a woman named Rosamund. Eventually, her father disappears and Rosamund marries another man. This man would become the father of Raislin and Caramon. Begrudgingly, she helps to raise the two younger boys. Although Caramon develops Kidiara's love for swordplay, she is much more akin to Raislin in personality. Both are intelligent and ambitious, but also cold-hearted, selfish, and manipulative. So it's a strange match when she takes Tannis Half-Elven as her lover. Whether Kidiara ever really loved Tannis, or loved him only when it suited her, is ambiguous. Maybe Kidiara herself doesn't even know. When the companions separate, five years before the events of Dragons of Autumn Twilight, Kidiara heads north with Sturm into Salamnia. Both are seeking their missing fathers. What happens between the two of them on their journey is best left to a later episode. Eventually, they separate. Kidiara joins the armies of the Queen of Darkness and rises to the rank of High Lord of the Blue Dragon Army. Only Ariakas outranks her, a situation she seeks to remedy throughout the novel. She eventually succeeds, of course. By the end of Dragons of Spring Dawning, she remains the only High Lord still in command of an army. Her loyal Blue Dragon, Sky, is himself one of the great villains of the Dragonlance series. He is fanatically loyal to Kidiara and willing to die for her. Kidiara's biggest moment in the first trilogy is the assault on the High Clarice's Tower at the end of Dragons of Winter Night. This is her master plan to strike a death blow to the Salamnic Knights and win glory for herself. It's a great plan, too. It almost works. Only the unexpected discovery of the dragon orb in the heart of the tower allows the knights to win. The scene when Kidiara reveals herself to Sturm at the top of the tower is perfectly executed. Kidiara has been off-screen for most of the first two novels, but she's been talked about so much that she's already a character we know. So the surprise feels earned, but also completely unexpected. It's hard not to like Kidiara, especially as a female reader. She's strong, sexy, confident, intelligent, funny, fearless, determined, and cunning. Basically every desirable attribute there is. So what if she's evil? She wears it well. Dragonlance is a series that has trouble finding things for female characters to do. We'll talk about it more in later episodes. But of all the mortal female characters in the series, Kidiara perhaps leaves the biggest mark on Kryn. She certainly destroys the most cities. Now we come to one of the most memorable characters in all of Dragonlance. I would even go so far as to say that he is one of the great villains in all of fantasy fiction. 
I speak of Lord Soth, the Knight of the Black Rose. Hundreds of years prior to the War of the Lance, Soth was a Knight of Salamnia in the highest order of the knightly ranks, a Knight of the Rose. His devotion to his order was such that his personal fortress, Dargard Keep, was designed to resemble the shape of a rose. From his keep, he commanded a platoon of loyal warriors who would defend their lord to the death. Soth was, by all accounts, a virtuous man, a paragon of the highest ideals of the knights. But inside Soth's soul were two deadly flaws, a pernicious jealousy and an uncontrollable temper. When Soth's wife is unable to bear him a healthy son, Soth becomes convinced that she has been unfaithful to him, and he scorns her. During this time, Soth and his warriors rescue a group of elf maidens who are traveling to Istar to become disciples of the king priest. Most of the elf maidens are total mean girls, but Soth falls in love with one of them and she with him. Fortunately, there's no issues with his first life because she mysteriously and conveniently disappears. For a time, Soth is happy. The elf woman Isolde bears him an heir to carry on the Soth family legacy, but his world is about to come crashing down, figuratively speaking. Eventually, the rumors of Soth's first wife's disappearance spread, and Soth is brought to Palanthus by the knights to stand trial for murder. He is found guilty, but is rescued by his loyal retainers before he can be executed. They manage to spirit him back to Dargard Keep, and the castle is put under siege by the knights. Isolde convinces Soth that they need to pray to the gods for a way out. Paladine hears their prayers and offers Soth a chance at redemption. He is given a vision of the cataclysm and told he can stop it, but it will cost him his life. Soth agrees and sneaks out of the keep to ride to Istar. Along the way, Soth is intercepted by the same mean elven girls from before. They convince Soth that their friend, his wife, has been unfaithful to him. Soth is overcome with jealousy and rides back home to confront her. All thoughts of redemption are forgotten. Soth reaches his keep just as his world comes crashing down, literally this time. The cataclysm strikes and the keep catches fire. Isolde is trapped with their child as the castle burns. She begs Soth to save the child, but Soth turns his back on both of them. As she dies, Isolde casts a curse on Soth. She condemns him to live one lifetime of undeath for every life he failed to save. Soth sits in his seat in the great hall as the castle burns. Soth himself is consumed by flame. But he awakens as a death knight, a nearly unstoppable warrior and magic user. His armor and his rose-shaped keep are burned black. The warriors who remain loyal to Soth are cursed as well to serve him in death. Even the elven women who deceived him are cursed. They become banshees who sing the song of Soth's downfall to him every single night. Lord Soth is fear, sorrow, and death incarnate. Lord Soth is kind of a loner, as you might imagine. Since the cataclysm, he hasn't done much. Tachesis asks him to serve her in the War of the Lance, but he says he will only serve her if one of her high lords can spend a single night in Dargard Keep. As it so happens, the High Lord that takes up the offer is none other than Kitiara. The two form a powerful alliance, powerful enough to challenge Ariakas himself. But Soth's true motivations are far more disturbing than even Kitiara predicted. All right, we've made it through our first trilogy together. Let's give ourselves a pat on the back. I hope you enjoyed reading the Chronicles trilogy if you've been reading along. 
If not, I hope you've enjoyed listening to me talk about it. It's a great series of novels, well worth a read, even if I've spoiled everything for you. It had a profound impact on my life, and I hope it had an impact on yours as well. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach me at dndbookclub at gmail.com. That's D-A-N-D-D book club. Or follow me on Instagram at dndbookclub. I hope you'll join me next time when we'll pick up two years after the end of the War of the Lance with the Dragonlance Legends trilogy. The series really hits its stride here, and I think you'll enjoy it. The first novel of the trilogy is called Time of the Twins, and it's still in print, so pick up or download a copy before the episode airs. Thank you for listening, and until next time, take good care of your heart. It's the only one you've got.